Sheriff Whitaker stands at the end of a dirt track. The rendezvous point of the rest of the survivors. If there are any left. From his vantage point, he can see out across the town. He can see the huge fireball beginning to engulf parts of the main street. He can see the great black cloud hanging above and the black rain pouring down, slowly killing the fire. He can hear the sound of battle. It tingles up his spine and causes him to reflect. Come on, Duck. Come on. Lead them out, boy. Lead them out. He stands, illuminated by the headlights, waiting, waiting. a large metal sign that says now entering Mercy's Creek uh, look I reckon I can translate what Tully is saying Jack is blackmailing all of us because he's a paranoid mess and you click your head over to the door just as it closes for old time's sake I'll give you two and after that I never want to hear from you again You see the blind man from before slowly tapping his cane up and down, up and down as he's standing in the middle of the car park. It's nothing personal, clients. I swear. It's just my job, you know. Anyway, happy Halloween. Challenger. We still get to kill Bates. And you find Willow Holmes dead on the floor. Shot through the head. Shakingly just holding her knife pointing towards her father. Whether it be the Harbinger or anyone else, none of you will make it out. None of you will survive. Hey, buddy. So, I guess what I'm really asking you, Olivia, do you want to die yourself? Or live as something else? My name is Mr. Bates. And though the world may have broken you, I shall rebuild you. Welcome to the ever-pleasant Mr. Bates, episode 12, The Master of Mercy, the final episode of the Dark Tides prequel series.
you find yourselves carless. So you run. You run like children through the streets. Along alleys, you take shortcuts you haven't travelled in over a decade. You run through backyards and you emerge onto Joint Avenue and you begin tearing your way through the great fields that surround Hampton. The long grass whipping at you. The wind rustles your hair. It finds ways beneath your clothes and takes hold, stealing away any remaining warmth within you. You've never seen your home this dark, this quiet. Behind you, a huge plume of smoke is beginning to billow from the main street, the glow giving the centre of town an eerie, apocalyptic feel. And words come to you in that moment. A poem you read once. Or maybe Jack read it to you. But it feels fitting. I had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space. Rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went, and came, and brought no day. And men forgot their passion in the dread of their desolation. And all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light. And they did live by watchfires. And the thrones, the palaces of crowned kings, the huts, the habitations of all things which dwell, were burnt for beacons. Cities were consumed, and men were gathered round their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes, and their mountain torch. A fearful hope was all the world contained. Forests were set on fire, but hour by hour they fell and faded, and the crackling trunks extinguished with a crash. And all was black. Tuck, as you run, wind whips against you and long grass beats at your feet as you go. And you feel the presence of someone else running alongside you. You cast your eyes over and you see the flash of an old-timey dress. Madame Goodwill, running. She is bruised and beaten and appears to be shot through the side. And she is running for her life. And just like that, she's gone again. Your heart's pounding. Ice and fear in your bones. You come upon Hampton Mansion in the gloom, waiting for you with a toothy grin. Olivia and Tuck, you rush up the steps. Tully, you're a few steps behind as you are battling with a stitch. Just clutch your side. Oh, my soccer days are behind me. (laughs) (laughs) Canonically the most fit Uh, of the three. (laughs) Despite the hope of maybe having a plan or handling this tactically to some degree, Tuck, you kick the door open and head in immediately. Olivia, you roll your eyes and follow after him uh, and you emerge into the entrance hall of the Great Mansion. Outside, tell her you have slowed to a walk, clutching your side, taking deep, painful breaths. You begin to mount the steps and reach for the side of the door to kind of steady yourself. When suddenly the door is flung shut. And there's a click as it is locked. 
Tully, you sway for a second. You hear the sounds coming from inside. You don't fully understand what sounds it is. Your brain just doesn't seem to connect it. You don't comprehend them. The sounds almost feel backwards. Voices feel disjointed and unhinged. And you're like, am I having a heart attack? (laughs) Can Can I smell toast? But you know the reason. Your mind has no ability to process these things as it is preoccupied with the feeling of a presence. Uh, Hello, Tally. Uh, it's been a little while since we talked. Uh, Walk with me, won't you? He's still trying to, like, open the door. You feel your mind cloud over. Despite trying to fight it, your bones and muscles deny you and do as they are told. You turn away from the door of the Hampton Mansion and you begin to walk with the man in black along the path of compressed grass. The fields rustle and groan as winds whip the fields. You come to a stop in the middle of Joint Avenue. Let's stop here, Tully. You feel yourself turn till you are standing directly in front of Bates, like a statue. You shouldn't... You shouldn't be here. I... Tuck, uh, he, he got rid of, he, he pulled, you feel the lips and the muscles in your mouth contract until nothing can get through as he hushes you. You make make the realisation you may have freed your mind, but your body belongs to him. Tuck may have broken the strings, but not to worry. You belong to me. You may have recaptured your mind, but your heart, body, and soul will always belong to me. Neil. Tully, you fall to your knees immediately. The knees of your pants tearing, and you feel the hot sensation of blood beginning to run from your knees, where they have cut from colliding with the ground. Can I attempt to raise my arm and shoot bits? Yeah. I'm going to say you're going to have to roll disadvantage for that, because Mm -hmm. you're literally fighting your own body. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, there's no way he wouldn't try. Yep, sure. Do it. Kill the uh, man. Five? Unless I'm adding, like, intelligence or physical to you it. You begin to crane your arm up and you're reaching your thumb up and pulling back the hammer on Willow's gun, the small little revolver, and you point it at Bates and he smiles and you shoot. <laughs> and it passes through him and birds billow out. Crows, they shriek and shout, and you realise that he is not physically here. <laughs> I knew it. He throws the gun away. <laughs> or, like, drops it or something. Tully, I gave you a gift. I welcomed you into my family with open arms. I trusted you. Your brothers and sisters loved you. I gave you everything you asked for. Security, a home, a steady and calm mind. I stay true to every side of my bargain. I stay true to our contract. You may have changed your mind about what you asked for, but I delivered everything you asked of me. You made me shoot Willow. You should have been more clear with your side of the contract. Oh, lovely. Great. I love that. 
and in response, you besperch my hospitality. You betray your brothers and sisters and you spit in my very face. You stand in camaraderie with my enemies. You work not only to undo me, but to do me harm. You violated every single aspect of our deal, of our contract, and of our friendship. I'm so sorry. And you think I'm just going to let you go? Wave it all away and pretend like it never happened. Pretend like you aren't my property. To do with as I please. You sold your soul to me. It is beyond your grasp to reclaim. So how about a new deal? A deal more befitting of the type of man you are. A contract that you have no say in, no control over, and no side to besmirch. He brings his hand to his mouth, and he bites down on the edge of the nail of his thumb and twists it, tearing the nail down the middle, giving it a jagged point. He reaches out and grasps your head. He places his thumb against your forehead and begins to use his nail as a way to cut into your forehead. Your eyes begin to water and you try to scream, but your mouth is still sealed shut. He begins carving a symbol into your forehead. He carves a triangle with a three-pronged fork within it. The fork rising from the middle and the three prongs stretching out to connect to each side at the top. He pulls his thumb away and back to his mouth. He now bites it, drawing blood that gushes out over his teeth before he presses it against your forehead, Tully, and it burns. The lines of the carved shape burn white hot. As he does that, Tully looks in his eyes with just, like, furious acceptance Like, he knows there's nothing he can do, but he's still very angry. He's like, I made my choice, old man. I don't care what you do to me. He smiles. The carved shape burns white hot, glowing in the night, as they are permanently burned onto you. A permanent scar that will never fade. Bates looks down upon you with disgust. I curse you, Tully Jackson. I curse you. You will go forth and never return to these lands. You will run as if the whips forged by my wrath were at your back. Your feet shall burn upon hallowed lands. Your throat will always be parched and nothing shall quench you. Your stomach will ache and no food will bring you reprieve. Nothing will satisfy you. You shall live a half life. A cursed life. You will walk the lands like a shadow. Unseen and unheard by those who mean to do you wrong. You are marked with my symbol. All those who hate me will hate you. All those who hunt me will hunt you. All those who despise evil will look upon you and spit in your face. 
the stink of the traitor will dog your step forevermore. Holy men will cover their eyes when you pass. Shaman will curse your presence in their towns. The day you die will be met with rejoicing, and you will never be buried. Your body will rot where it falls, and none will pay it any mind. They will simply step over you. I curse you. You belong to me, and I reject you. Now leave my sight, leave my house, and leave my lands. And he pulls away his thumb from you. You feel as if this was the last piece of human contact you will ever experience in your life. You feel yourself let go of his influence as he allows you to get up. You can't even look at him. It's almost like you're not allowed. Your eyes can't bear to look upon him anymore. And like a dying old dog, you slink away. First a trot before breaking into a run. None of Bates's creatures try to stop you. They simply look at you with the same look of disgust. You run like a beaten and afraid animal. You soon reach the lot, and from this height you look back over the town. Your home. It makes your stomach turn and your soul scream. You feel it already. The ache in your stomach and the dryness of your throat. You begin to run onwards in hopes of maybe finding a trucker to give you a lift on the highway if they can bear the sight of you. Back at the Hampton Mansion, you guys spin around as the door is slammed and locks itself. What are you uh, going to do? T- Tully? Tully? Oh, shoot. Okay. Okay. I don't think we can do anything for him. Okay. Uh, right. 
Look, Tuck, I, I have to have a word with you about this whole, like, anger thing. Mm-hmm. No, it's probably not the best time. Like, I know you draw on that for, like, fighting and stuff, but when it comes to Bates, we can't... We can't attack him. Attacking him isn't going to fix anything. Tuck's turning the hammer in his hand. You know, normally, I would never stop you. I haven't stopped you in the past. There was only one time, and that time you came to see reason. I am hoping that you will see what I see this time as well. I'm going to give him a choice. That's the best that I can do. I'm going to give him a choice. But... And he pulls the like pulls on the necklace so that the two wooden talismans that Jess had carved clatter. You're right. For Jess, for Buddy too. Jack and Willow and Floyd, and the Harlows and everything else. There's no point if we can't salvage anything good. So we salvage what's good. We keep going. We we plant more seeds and good things grow and eventually it'll cover up everything else that's ruined. But we've got to cut out the rot first. And I'm going to give him a choice. All right, so what's the plan? I haven't really got that far ahead. Oh, um, gosh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You turn now to look at the mansion and you hear a voice echo through it. You can say these streets are rivers. You can call these rivers streets. You can tell yourself you're dreaming, buddy. But no sleep runs this deep. You turn and see him. The large room is almost as big as the trophy room within the town hall. It is large and ominous. The old wood, once polished, now grey and warped, gives the room a stony appearance. In the centre of the room is a grand staircase, reaching up to the other levels. Upon this once illustrious staircase sits the ever-pleasant Mr Bates. Hands clasped, his glasses reflecting the small amount of light within the room, back at you. A shadow in the night, he smiles at you. Welcome, children of mercy. Welcome to my land. Welcome to my legacy. Welcome to the grave. As he says this, your eyes follow his gaze and you look down. Not three meters in front of you, in the very center of the room, is a great pit. Five meters in diameter, straight down, perfectly carved into the earth with clawed hands. Bates claps his hands and you hear a rumbling. Sound from within the pit. Clumps of dirt break free from the walls as something begins to climb up out of it. In the darkness, its form is almost impossible to make out. It is many-armed, many-legged. Its body is contorted. It's like a cluster, a hive, a groaning, moaning body. Faceless, mouthless, eyeless. 
It clumsily pulls itself from the pit and pulls itself sliding across the floor through the door to the side, leaving you alone. Uh... Mind explaining? (laughs) He gestures. A way to dig. The fortified are very useful. That's disgusting. Yeah, I'll be honest, that's a bit disturbing. It's not great. (laughs) I don't control the way they appear. It's not great. Hmm. Right, well, let's get this over with. I agree. He gets up. (laughs) You, You notice now he is not walking with his cane. Let me spell this out for you. Mm-hmm. You're defenseless now. Mm-hmm. No persona. Mm-hmm. No horde. Mm-hmm. I've got a hammer. Mm. I'm going to put this through your face. Mm. If you don't, take the other thing that I'm offering. Mm. Just stop <laughs> doing that. <laughs> His hand is still like clasping his hand and like, like. <laughs> Tucker's gonna start circling around the pit towards him. Uh, okay. Liv takes the other side around other side? the pit. Sure. Look, I'm not that smart, mm. but from what I can piece together, you want this town because this is where your people used to be before the hunters burned it all, right? Somewhat. So you want to rebuild your civilization of, of weirdos in black hats and mind powers here as uh, sticking it to the hunters, right? No. All right, close enough. Um, anyway, you want this town, right? He shrugs. Well, right. that's good. I've got an offer for you. An offer? Have you heard about Alaska? (laughs) Talk. I don't know. Let me finish. You wanted me. Mm -hmm. You wanted whatever it is that I can do for you. And I said no to being one of your little puppets. Mm. Well, I'm not going to be your puppet. That doesn't mean that I can't give you what you want if you take all of the in gestures to where the horrific thing pulled itself out of the pit. All your little friends, everyone that you've corrupted and ruined and destroyed, and you take them and you leave Mercy's Creek, go to Alaska or somewhere else, and you build your town there. You rekindle a civilization or whatever. You do it far away from anywhere else. I'll give you what you want if you go. And if you don't take that offer, it's like hefting the hammer. I'm going to kill you now. Emily, 
you are currently dealing with the persona. You have fought them all as a group. They are coming in with little hits, little shots, and you are pushing them back. It seems like they're more testing you than anything. Weaver is still carving a path, and he keeps looking over to you to see if you're done yet, to see if, like, we can run and he can stop. (laughs) Um, uh, You are out of breath, and you're swinging your sword. It is still slightly on fire. You cough and uh, slap yourself. The persona form a, a circle around you, and one that was staying back walks up now before you, and he brushes the others aside, and they back off. He looks at you, and he's a bit different to the others. He is dressed all in black with a large black hat, riding boots. He looks almost like a cowboy. He gives a a long, deep bow to you, rises back up. I am Heathcliff, milady. I am the general of the persona. Okay, good, I it's guess. It's a fine night for a bloodbath. Just looking up at the sky. Yep, mm-hmm. He swings the blade, and you see as he swings it, it bends and contorts until it is the same as yours. So he is meeting you on your level, and he brings the sword up and taps it against his forehead. Neat trick. And then he raises it above his head, which you know is the stance for a jewel. It is rare to come across a human who is willing to challenge the persona. This is not by blood. I wonder how many strikes before you fall. Well, you're about to find out. Uh, Emily takes a moment to stretch her shoulders and bend her knees She's flicking the sword in circles, spinning her wrist the way that Polish fences do to warm up. She raises it above her head, mirroring his position. Getting pretty tired of hearing about bloodlines and power through genealogy. That is because you're uncultured. A commoner. But let's fight anyway. That's what war is good for. It means I can rise above my station. And it's good for bleeding the pigs dry. She's going to go in low. He's going to go too. All right, so what we're going to do is same as the Warwick and Heath and uh, Tony and... Emily fight, we're just going to roll and bounce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. Well, it's the same thing. That's what he's saying. Are we adding anything to? Uh, use your usual combat modifiers. Uh, all right, well, with Emily, that's five. Okay. <laughs> it is. Right. I go for his leg. I take it. I flick it so that the, the blade flicks 
across the back of his knee. Okay, so the two of you go in, you clash in the middle, and you are pushed back, Emily. He is stronger than you, but you are quicker than him. The rain uh, falling down all around you, the flickering light of the fire behind you, the sound of death and mutilation behind as the personas stand, a, a just a kaleidoscope of these things around you as you are clashing in the middle. You're striking, you're darting, you're dodging. He is using both the sword, but he's also using his fist as well. He's going for you, he's pushing you back. You... Like as he's swinging, you push your arm up to push his arm away as you go under and you slash across his Achilles tendon. He falls to the side a little bit and then comes back up. Roll again. Ten. Uh, no, sorry. Twelve. Fourteen. Uh, he, uh, you've just done this. He comes around and just punches you across the face and you go down and you hit the ground and you bounce back up at a little bit. And he kicks you in the stomach and you grind across it. You're now a few meters back and your sword has gone out. Do I have more of those little vials? You have four, you've used one. Let me use another one. Okay, you get up, you throw it down, it smashes and you click again and it ignites. You spin it around again. He's like, ah, nice. And he like squeezes the handle of his and it copies yours but with a black flame and he spins it as well. You know where that sword comes from? He shrugs. More commoners? Yes. Lovely. He's going to dive in. Uh, 14. 14 as well. The two of you clash in the middle. He is using all of his weight down on you. It's pushing you back and back, and you turn the blade towards you, so he slides back, and you get on the other side of him. Um, I'm going to do something. I want to try something that comes from this particular school of fencing. I'm going to grab the blade. Because these are Polish sabers, um, the back is not sharpened. Okay, roll. Um, oh, your blade or his blade? Mine. Your blade, okay. And that is a 12. Okay. So I grab it by the back of the blade where it's bluntest in the, the center of my hand with my thumb around it. And I spin my handle down and my blade over the top of his, bring the handle back up so that I'm holding it almost like a spear, and I ram it down through his defense. Okay, you hit him in the chest uh, and you feel it digging in and he uh, coughs, brings his leg up and kicks you in the stomach and you uh, go back. All right, uh... He's going to spin around a little bit, spinning the blade, going faster and faster, the fire, creating this kaleidoscope view of him within it. Next round. Uh, 11. Seven. Yep. Okay. You go back in. He squats down a little bit now and you jump. You go over him and you slice across his shoulder, down his back a little bit as you land and roll on the other side. He, uh, like, slumps a little bit, swings the blade around again and gets up. There is... This feels like there's more smoke coming off him now, but the rain is still pitter-pattering. Yep. Another 14. Okay. Uh, 10. Alright, you go in again, you're going faster and faster, he seems to be slowing down in some ways. You start darting left and right, slashing here and there, and pushing him back. Mm, 11. 
Okay. You do it again where you grab the, the back of your sword and you're using it like that as a bit of, de- of defense, moving it around more quickly as he's swinging. And he begins to swing really, really hard. And you're holding like this and it's bang, 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 bang as he's taking chips and chunks and pieces out of your sword. Bang, bang, bang. I'm going to roll again. Yeesh. Ten. You bring it down as he swings the blade along with a 13 and he slices and he breaks the sword in two and he cuts you from your, from your neck across your face. And as he does, he swings with his fist and hits you directly in the chin and you go flying backwards. You drop your sword, it clatters on the ground and goes out as you roll across the ground, blood gushing down and you cough. You're completely winded. You feel like some ribs might have broken there and your sword is broken. takes a few steps down the steps and there is an uncomfortable feeling of it. The way he moves, and Tuck, you recognise this, he is moving like a marionette. Mm. Like he is in very little control of his own body. And as he comes down, you see that from beneath his glasses, it's almost like raindrops are coming. But they're going up. Trails of ink rising up. Black as the persona. He comes down and he clasps his hands behind his back. Hmm. Interesting idea. Very interesting. Hmm. But I have work to do here. And he, like, gestures at the hole. What are you digging for? My great aunt died in this house. She was the lady of the house of a neighbouring estate. I first came by the name Mercy's Creek from my own mother when I was but a lad. She spoke to my father about visiting my great-aunt's grave, but their lives were cut short before they ever could attempt the trip. I was young. I didn't understand the importance of history. Not until my daughter. She died never knowing what she was. What her people believed. How we acted, how we danced, how we sung. When I lost her, I realized I had been leading a half-life, a life devoid of my own culture. A lie. I had robbed my daughter of an understanding of herself. I had robbed my wife of a full understanding of the man she had agreed to marry. The hunters were on my trail, so I decided to wait. Wait them out. They were merely human. They would die out sooner or later, but... Somehow, after decades of running and hiding, one remained. And he was young. 
tenacious and willing to sell his soul to find me. Weaver got too close, so I knew I had to set my plans in motion. I had to get to Mercy's Creek. I was being careful. I arrived here and I was keeping a low profile. Then it happened. I had a heart attack. It debilitated me for much of the two months I was here. Weaver was only getting closer. So I was desperate and I acted desperately. But here we are at last. Before Weaver could cut me down and before my own body could betray me. He pulls a leather-bound book from his pocket and flips it open. History awaits. I have one question about history for you, Mr. Bates. Mm Mm-hmm. You fought in many of our wars. Yes. Did you see any similarities between Hitler, anyone else who tried to conquer a land that they presumed their own, theirs for the taking, and did you notice any consistency in what they did to the people that they displaced? (laughs) He walks down and stands at the pit and looks at you. My dear. History is written by those who win. This is coloured by those who win. But no, I agree, I fought with the Allies. I stood against such men. Then why do you not stand against the persona who are corrupting you now? I am in charge. Look at yourself. I am blind. (laughs) You can tell that there is a difference. Don't give me your I'm a blind man crap. You can tell that there is something that has fundamentally changed in you. Don't you want to know what it is? Don't you want to be truly, 100% yourself, uninfluenced by someone else, by the persona, by whoever hunts you? Do you not want to be your own person? He flicks his thumb through the book, looks at you. Idea, what do you think will happen once this is all over? Tia knows about me now. The agency too. They will come in force. And they will eradicate everything. You have the chance to tell your history. No. I have a chance to learn my history before the end. If it's not Weaver, it'll be someone else. If it's not Weaver... It'll be you two. Or it'll be Tia. Or it'll be the agency. There is no future. There is only the past. If we linger in the past, there is no future. That can only be said by those who have unending access to their past. Privileged by culture history. I do not know even if my people had religions. I don't know what type of people they were. I don't know if I'm as much of a monster as Weaver claims I am. Or if there is even anything good in me. That is the power of history. Has he come down the stairs at all and turned to face Liv at this point? He's standing at the bottom of the steps, but 
He's not facing you. He's just speaking. Liv's eyes are going to flick over to Tuck. Kind of in a... I'm going to try and distract him, grab him. Um, She's going to walk towards Bates and she's going to put out her hands as if to say, just give us a chance. Bates looks at you. I cannot offer you your past. I'm not going to make you promises that I can't keep like so many people before me have made to you. I am not looking to betray you. I just want to help. You want to help. Why won't you let us help? Claim to help. Yet you bring a hunter's blade into my presence. It was a gift. The I'm massacre not going to... of my people. Oh my goodness. Would it make you happy if I threw it into the hole? Actually, and he clicks his thumb and you hear a door open from above and you see Amelia come through. She is looking disgruntled, ruffled, very tired and she comes down the stairs. Bates looks up and says, Amelia has been very helpful. The last human I could think to help me. The display cases in the town hall. They're made of mountain ash. Same as your lodge. I cannot get access to them. So, I need someone unsupernatural to get me this. Amelia holds out the rusted old hunter's blade. And he takes it from her. And he begins to circle the hole. He runs his hand over it, brushing off the rust and dust off it and into the hole. What better way to connect with my ancestors than with their very blood? And he chucks the blade into the hole. Olivia, you are preparing to leap forwards. You can see Tuck is inching closer and closer. You're going to try and restrain Bates and give Tuck the opportunity to either attack him or subdue him or something, and then you make eye contact with Amelia. She's staring at you and she's shaking her head and she's mouthing, no, run. Bates clicks his head towards you away from the hole and he holds out his hand and says, enough. And like a wave hits you, You see Amelia grab her hands to her own throat, silencing her and cutting off the air. She starts to strangle herself, her eyes darting around, trying to work out what's going on as her hands are fighting her. And Olivia, you find yourself completely frozen to the spot. You cannot move. It's like your body is no longer your own. And you remember what Weaver said. Bates is a creature of influence. You dart your eyes over and you see because Tuck wasn't the focus of whatever type of mental attack this was, you see him dart forwards and grab onto Bates. Tuck, you're already on him and you grab him. And you expect to go into that place. But you don't. You're standing there with him. And he slowly turns around and looks at you. You try and dream with me. Who do you think taught humans how to dream? 
How about I show you a nightmare? How about I show you mine? And he brings up a finger and he flicks you in the forehead. you suddenly find yourself once again in that dark space with a thin layer of water at the bottom. You pull yourself up, gasping, looking around, and you see him, Bates, a few metres off, watching you. Now, I won't lie, I do need you for this, Tuck. But I can operate you like a marionette. I really don't need your mind. And he reaches out and clicks his fingers. And the water begins to swallow you. You begin to lower deeper and deeper into it. You splash at it. You try and fight against it as you go deeper and deeper. He walks up towards you, looking down at you as you begin to sink deeper and deeper into what was water, what now feels like tar as it consumes you. You tried, little man. You tried. And he begins to walk away as your head is fully taken by the water and you sink beneath the waterline. Back to reality, Olivia, you are trying to pull yourself towards Amelia, trying to help her, but you can't move and your eyes click over as you see Tuck go limp. And Bates is basically holding him up now. And he lets go and lets Tuck fall into the pit. Olivia, you are blasted off your feet as an absolute eruption comes up through the giant hole in the floor. Amelia is still choking herself. Her face is going red and she is sunk to her knees. But your eyes are drawn to the giant hole as bright white ash is spinning in a cylinder out of it, accompanied by bones and the knife from before, and you see Tuck suspended in the middle of it. Bates opens his arms and looks into the ash. Finally. Finally, I can talk to them. western side bodies are piled up high weaver has basically become a meat grinder of things that come into his path he is slicing and dicing and burning and just about everything and vesper is darting around whenever anything comes close to hitting him him and vesper 
seem to merge into one and it gives him some type of armor and the attack just deflects off and he immediately slices it down. Weaver is cutting these things down and he is starting to go get overwhelmed as the fortified have arrived. These are inhuman creatures. They are morphed together. They are just almost impossible to to look at. They are hideous creatures. They move in and out of the darkness. They slither. They worm their way. They are masses. He is trying to work out how to deal these things. He's cutting off limbs, but he doesn't have the strength to cut through them fully as they are just big chunks of flesh. And he's just trying to like keep them back while these other creatures are swarming him and he's fighting back. And he looks over and sees that Emily is down. Olivia, you dust yourself off and start to clamber back up. This being blown back and all that business seems to have freed you from whatever control Bates had over you or whatever command it was. And you look over and see that Amelia has been able to get one of her hands away from her throat as using that free hand to try and pull the other one away. You're about to take a step towards her when you are struck in the face so hard by a persona. It sends you flying across the room. You clash onto the ground. You pull out your hunter's blade and have just brought it up in time as the creature swings at you with its sword. You just have the knife in the right place to take the hit on the knife rather than in your, like, side. The strike is so powerful, it pushes your hands against you and sends you flying once again, crashing into one of the walls, and you clamber down onto the ground. You look over again and see Amelia's face is turning redder and redder, and you see Tux suspended in this ash. You see Bates walking towards this cylinder of ash that is twirling around this room like a gale, and the persona walks towards you. You try to bring the blade up again, it clashes its blade against yours and then brings down its fist and smashes your nose. You feel blood going down across your mouth and you feel struck in the stomach again as it punches you up. You lift off the floor and it strikes back down with another fist, smashing you into the floorboards. You feel them crack underneath you. Bates begins reaching out towards the ash and you can start to see forms within it. Shapes, arms, torsos, heads. Tuck, you find yourself suspended in complete darkness you're not moving you're just floating everything is silent everything is dark there is an oppressive feel around you you try to move but your body is frozen and you realise You've lost. All of you. Jack. Willow. Jess. Buddy. Tully. Olivia. And you. You think back to everything Jack said to you. 
to those hours you spent walking together. Only a few hours ago, it feels. I'm sorry. I really am. I'm... I'm sorry. I thought... It doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter. I'm sorry I let you down. I let all of them down. Everyone. see a great sweeping shot of the main street of Mercy's Creek as the fire started by Weaver is finally extinguished by the black rain killing off the last of the light Weaver and Vesper are beginning to be completely overwhelmed the masses and masses of these creatures they just can't hold their ground anymore they're pushed further and further back Weaver is growing slower and slower, and Vesper's light is growing weaker and weaker. The Persona are slowly shrinking the circle around Emily as she lays on the ground, her sword a few feet in front of her, broken halfway up the length of the blade. She doesn't move, she just lays there. Olivia, you cough up blood as you turn, lying on the ground, to face the persona that is now standing above you. You see him slowly lifting his sword up, up. Tuck, you are floating, deeper and deeper. You can see the top level of this layer of water high above, and you can see Bates there. But you're getting further further away I'm not special I'm not a leader I'm not anything you know from my experience extraordinary things aren't done by extraordinary people they're done by the ordinary You feel a hand press against the small of your back. And then another. And then another. And then hundreds more hands. Olivia, you see the persona just about to swing the blade down when you see the barrel of a gun pressed against his head. And you hear Amelia say, Bang! As she shoots it in the head, unbalancing it and knocking it off you. We see the handle of Emily's sword as rain drips onto it, the blade now entirely extinguished. And slowly, but surely, we see her fingers stretch out and grab the handle. 
Emily pulls herself to her feet, breathing hard, complete darkness all around her. She coughs, wipes the blood from her eyes, and chucks down another bottle and ignites the blade in that purple fire once again. She swings the blade and holds it above her head once again, the light casting out over the main street. Weaver looks up to see it as she makes eye contact with Heathcliff. They begin pushing you, pushing you up, pushing you towards that thin layer of water, up, up, up. You can feel them all around you. Jack, Willow, Buddy, Jess, Floyd, and not just them. You feel the whole town all around you, pushing you, pushing you, pushing you up, and you break the surface. You reach your hands out and you grab onto Bates and you delve deep into his mind. You see flashes as you travel deep into Bates's mind, into his memories. You see him exiting a hospital. At least you assume it's him. He's a young man with no glasses and no cane, but he's using crutches as his leg is cast. He slowly, awkwardly makes his way down a flight of steps and comes to a car. There is a woman who has the hood up and is working on the engine. He taps on the door. Excuse me, I was told um, there'd be a driver for me. Is that you? She looks up at him and smiles. Uh, she looks him up and down. I think so. Yeah. You're uh, Bates, right? Yes, that is. Yes, that's me. Okay, so I gotta take you... Uh... Ah, right, okay, cool. She looks up at you. Speedy recovery? He nods. I hope so. I do hope so. Uh, what's your name? He extends out his hand. Hmm? Sam. She extends out hers and shakes his. I guess I'll be your driver for the time being. That's going to be very strange. I've never had a driver before. Yeah, well, I've never had someone so young to drive around. It's usually old guys. Well, I'll, I'll try not to be boring. Let's, let's go with that. Yeah, it's a good place to start. This memory dissolves and you come to what feels like many, many years later. You see Bates sitting in a cardigan and trousers with the ankles rolled up. His hands are dirty from managing the rose garden out the front of the house. He is sitting just on the the front steps with a cup of tea next to him, and he is looking out at the morning sun. A little girl runs up to him and opens up a small leather-bound book and is showing him some of her drawings. He smiles and takes the book and flips through the pages, pointing at different ones and exclaiming, She sits down with him and looks up at the sun as well. He looks at her and smiles and puts the book in her hand. You're up very early. She smiles and rests her head against his shoulder. Her eyes fluttering a little as she almost falls back asleep. (laughs) A bit too early, it seems. 
la kookaburra la kookaburra love how happy are we he uses his shoulder to rock her slightly side to side as her eyes completely close he smiles this memory also dissolves and you find yourself out on the street now tuck you turn around and see that the entire street is practically reduced to rubble You can tell by the design that this was, at least once, an English street, somewhere in London. But it is completely devastated. You hear the clinking sound of stones and you turn around and you see a man. You see Bates. He is at the top of a pile of rubble. And he is frantically pulling pieces aside digging his hands in, cutting them. They are bleeding heavily already. And he is chucking stones over his shoulder as he's digging through the rubble. He stops. And his shoulders go limp. As he pulls a small leather-bound book out of the rubble. This image dissolves again And you find yourself back in another hospital, but this time in a room. The curtains are drawn so no light can come in, but there is a slight bit of light coming through a crack between the two curtains. You see Bates sitting in a wheelchair, facing away from the window. His face and eye area is heavily padded and bandaged. But even now, small little bits of blood are coming through the bandages. He sits. A nurse comes to the door. She knocks, comes in. She picks up the tray of uneaten food. She looks at him. She opens her mouth to say something, but turns away and leaves again. He squeezes the armrests of his wheelchair. And then this finally breaks as you break through the last of these memories. And you come into a room. You see Bates. The true Bates. Sitting on the floor. And bound to him are hundreds and hundreds of chains. They extend out to a crowd of thousands. Each and every one of them pulling him in a different direction. Each and every one of them adorned with a white mask over their face. A mask with a smile drawn on it, like a child's drawing. 
You see, standing above the true Bates, you see a much older looking Bates, the one that you recognize. He is standing above him, resting his hands on the shoulders of the other. And he is as black as the persona. His own chains are extended to himself. Black chains. And they give off a black smoke. The older Bates looks up to you. How? How? Wait. No. And you look about yourself. And you realise... You're not surrounded by the town. You're surrounded by a great crowd of people you do not recognize. But there is one you recognize, and she steps forward. Madame Goodwill. Enough of this, Bates. Enough of all of this. You have become everything that they tried to make you. A fine way of honoring our legacy by becoming everything we tried to fight against. Our history is a long history of mistakes and wars and failures and beauty. But it is just history. It is past. And you had a chance to be better. Emily, you duck and you weave and you avoid. You take steps to the right, steps to the left, steps back, but you are constantly pushing forwards. The shorter blade means you are at a bit of a disadvantage, but you are using it to the best of your ability. You're using it to stay close and to stay hard. You're hitting him with everything you've got. Your muscles scream in agony with every hit, but you go harder and harder with each and every single one. You're pushing him back, back, back. You pivot to the side, you fling the blade out, pushing his sword back, and you twist your wrist around and you carve a slice across his back. Olivia, you see the persona reeling back, bringing his blade up, about to slice at Amelia, and you pull the hunter's blade up from the ground. You take aim and you throw it. It spins, spins. Tuck, you see your opportunity and you launch forwards as you see something moving within this space. It's shadowy, it's hard to make out, it's fuzzy. But you see Emily. You twist around him, you push the hand out of the way again and you bring the sword up and across and you cut him in half just like he did Jack Finney. From hip to shoulder, you slice him and there is an arc of fire all around you and he explodes into smoke and you reach your hand out as this arc of fire reaches around you and you catch 
his sword in midair. And there is a screeching roar from the persona as they too explode into smoke. He spins and stabs straight into the persona's forehead, pushing it back and you see it explode into smoke. And their smoke spins around you like a hurricane and hits into the blade. You feel this surge of power blast through you as you drop your other sword and grab it with both hands. This smoke spinning around you and you lift the sword up and you swing it down. She has drawn a sword, a sword you do not recognize, and she is lifted above her head and she strikes it down and she severs one of the two chains connecting the two baiters. And you launch forwards and you grab onto the chain and you pull, you pull with all your might and you feel the other baits, the younger one, pulling with you and you feel the last chain break. Olivia and Amelia, you see the spire of ash spin and grow wilder and wilder as you see figures, hundreds, thousands of figures standing within it all around Bates. It spins faster and faster as he falls to his knees, grabbing onto the side of his head, yelling. You see the hundreds of thousands of figures all around him all reach up and point directly at Bates, all of them in a great circle, the thousands and thousands of them all pointing directly at him and there is a great powering up as the wind grows stronger and stronger and then it all dies and Tuck's body is gone. Olivia, you slump down to the ground onto one shoulder, gasping for air. Barely able to understand what just happened and what's happening now. And you see something float down through the air. And you slowly reach your hand out and grab it. A picture of all of you. And you remember that day so clearly as kids. It must have fallen from Tuck's pocket. But you can't see Tuck. You hold the picture tightly as you pass out. Amelia sinks down and starts to try and pick up. Okay. And then she looks over to Bates, who's kneeling now in the empty room. He stands up. He dusts his jacket off and adjusts it. He tightens his tie and adjusts his hat. He walks to the door and opens it. (coughs) Wait. Amelia says. Olivia said you were being... Controlled or something. Didn't they free you? Are you... 
He pauses. <laughs> so you're gonna fix stuff, right? You're gonna fix the town. He pauses at the door and turns to her. Amelia. Every choice I made, every action I did, I did in complete and utter control. He reaches up and snaps his fingers and the entire building is blasted away like strings were held to the walls. They are pulled away and go flying across the fields. And now Amelia and Olivia are just sitting on the floorboards in open field. I am so powerful that shepherds fear me. Do you think a persona could ever manipulate my mind. I am in control. But there's nothing for me here in Mercy's Creek. Not anymore. He adjusts his hat, tips it and bows to her before turning and walking away. street, the forerunners and fortified have stopped and withdrawn back. They've disappeared into the darkness. And Weaver goes over to Emily. She is kneeling on the ground, holding the persona's sword. He comes over and places a hand on her shoulder. You did it. But you should know. This is a poisoned chalice that you've picked up. Every day of your life, every choice you make, they will try and destroy you with it. They will try and control you when they fight for you. The persona gather around Emily, looking at her. She clambers to her feet and holds out her hand, and one of them hands their sword over to her. Really? Well, in that case, I think I'll fight for myself. She grasps it and brings it down on her knee, shattering it, and it shatters all the ones in their sheets. And then she sits down and breathes heavily. 
Weaver's attention is soon drawn as he sees a great crowd gathering at the westernmost edge of town. He walks out along the main street towards the edge of it and he sees them off in the distance. The last of the fortified and the forerunners. Then he sees Bates walk out to them. The two men stand about 200 metres apart. They stare at each other for a moment. Weaver sheaves his sword and slowly raises his fist into the air. Bates pauses and nods a few times and walks off into the darkness. And as he walks, he raises his fist up too. Weaver mutters to himself as he sees him go. Olivia, you fade back into consciousness for a moment and you find yourself in the back of a car that is rumbling along. You don't fully know where you are, but you can see the back of Amelia's head as she is driving you somewhere. You crane your head to look out window and you see a sign flying past. Now leaving Mercy's Creek. You blink a few times and look back to what's in your hand. The photo of you and your friends. And you turn it over and you see that it's not just a photo. It's a postcard. And there is something written in Jack's handwriting on the back. You read it and once again you fade out. You zone back in for a moment as you feel the car coming to a stop. You see Amelia pressing her gun against the edge of the door as she winds it down and you hear the sound of a man talking through. <sighs> you all got through there. <sighs> Tuck. Right. Uh, well... Your best take my car. It's got a full tank. You'll get further. You feel yourself being moved, and once again, you fade out. And you blink, and you find yourself in the back of Jess's pickup. Ten years younger just finished with a day of school. Jess has some Neil Young playing on the radio. Tuck is flicking rocks off onto another car. Buddy is sitting next to you. Floyd and Willow are standing on the back looking out over the car as the wind brushes through their hair. Jack is nagging them about standing up while the car is driving. And Tully is sitting with his head in the clouds, watching the other cars pass by and you hear the words of Jack's letter. 
Today is the fifth anniversary of the passing of our dear friend Floyd Tibbet. If I have the guts to send this on time, that is. It's been a while, old friends, and I'm ashamed to admit that I don't know how these letters will find you. Are you well? Are you happy? I miss you, but I know that's okay, because I know you miss me too. I know Floyd's passing was hard on us. I know some of us took it harder than others. I know it broke some of us more than others. I don't blame any of you for leaving, nor do I wish to make myself a martyr for staying. We're growing up. We make choices. My friends, my dear friends, I'm happy that you left. There is an urge to look behind upon leaving, but I think it is best not to. Hell, look at Lot's wife. Looking back is to deny the future. How does one leave home, though, as the sun sets behind on such a warm summer's day? How do you leave your soul in the earth you took it from? You can't. You remain here. At least a part of you does. The chest we buried in the backyards of our youth, filled with all that we believed as children, Everything that made our eyes shine and our minds run wild with possibility. But if you do happen to look back, just for a moment, don't worry. I'm still here. Jointner is still yet to get retard. Kids still turn the Hampton Fields into soccer pitches every summer. The creek still breaks its banks every spring. The ghost of all we were and all we still are remains. Well, now to be a bit more personal. I'm sorry if I'm talking about things that may be a little out of date, but I'm five years behind. Tuck, I hope you can learn to be the man you deserve to be, not the man you fear to be. Tully, I pray you see how worthy you are of respect. Buddy, don't be afraid to be alone. It's only upon being alone and waiting that we meet people who deserve us. Olivia, every tunnel consists of darkness, but we travel on in hopes of what it is beyond, not what we must go through. Willow. There is a time for everything under the sun. You will have your time. Jess, I hope you and your little one are going well. Yes, I know. I'm trained to be a doctor. I noticed the signs. I wish you would have trusted us then as you used to, but I don't blame you for wanting to run away. And lastly, Floyd. No matter what, no matter when next we meet, You'll always be the baby of our family. So I finish with this. To my brothers, Tuck, Tully, Floyd, Bud. To my sisters, Olivia, Jess, Willow. Don't turn back. Don't look behind. Drive away and try to keep smiling. 
Get a little rock and roll on the radio and go towards all the life there is with all the courage you can find and all the belief you can muster. Be true. Be brave. Stand. All the rest is darkness. through the window of once Heath O'Sullivan's spare bedroom, now Warwick's office, on a cold, dreary, rainy night. Heath sits in an armchair off to the side and Warwick sits at his desk. As he finishes up his tale, he goes through his few days that he spent at the hospital and the mountain of paperwork he had to get through. The two men sit. Well, there you have it. That's the story. Not very cheery, especially on a day like today. He's looking out the window at the rain pattering. Maybe I should have picked something a little more cheery. Oh, well. Uh, Well, it's... It's good to finally get the full story. I just... I just don't understand... Why didn't you go after Bates? Why didn't you hunt him down like a dog? After everything he did, the amount of people... There is a knock at the door. Heath pulls himself up, relying heavily on his cane as his body is mostly stiff and he slowly makes his way, heavily relying on the cane to pull himself along. He opens the door and lets an older, tall gentleman in. And he returns to his seat and slowly lowers himself down, wincing as he does. Ben Mears steps into the room and stands before the desk. Warwick, I'd say I was... I missed you, but uh, quite frankly, I'm just happy to see you right now. Mr. Mears, this is an unexpected visit. Agency business? Not really. Things are fallen. Quite frankly, I didn't think the planes will be up much longer, so I got a trip while I could. Hmm. It feels like an inopportune time to gloat, but, um, yes, also we're not doing that good either. Well, if things are, uh, so dramatic as that, why the visit? The agency won't be able to 
support you. I've been working with the agency for 40 years, and this is all I could get. Chance to say goodbye. Well, Ben, I have to say that's um, unexpectedly touching, to be honest. I was not expecting that. Um, I know that Tyr and the agency didn't always have the, uh, the most, shall we say, mutually respectful working relationship, but I guess everyone's in the same sinking boat now. Yeah, it's true. But with all this going on, relationships are gonna... gonna break. And, quite frankly, if I'm to be completely honest, I didn't really like Tyr. You all had so much freedom. Your educational system and your training was beyond what we had. But it took me a while, but now I, I seem to find I have respect for Tia, for you, for Amelia. Mm. Well, thank you, Ben. I know that that probably wasn't very easy to say. Nope. <laughs> Ten coffees. Uh, the agency, since we're saying nice things, uh, the agency is big and has a lot of funding. Yep. True. True. Although, quite frankly, it seems with all the rules that are being added on, they're just strangling us to death. That's an unfortunate response. Now, I know that you will uh, never consider it and um, absolutely refuse, but if you ever want a job with a different agency, and here is hiring, and I would vouch for you, you're... You're probably the best agent I've ever worked with that wasn't from my own organization. And that is saying a lot. Even with these battered arms and many years under my belt. Warwick, you recall hearing the reports and you did visit him in America once. You heard of the horrific events that took Ben Mears' powers forever. And the torment that he went through. Ben... Experience is worth its weight in gold. Any extra natural abilities come and go, but at the end of the day, that's what you rely on. Right now, we need as many young ones as we can find, but they're no good if we don't have someone to teach them. So uh, don't count yourself out of the fight just yet. I know, and actually, that is why I must leave. I've... I guess I've been put on the job of training young recruits, bringing them up the ranks. Although I wish it was Gideon and Fabian training this new generation. They were good boys. That they were. Well, thank you, Ben. It's much appreciated. Of course, um, I'd invite you in, but... Well, there's not much to invite you into. Ben Mears stands and shakes Warwick's hand. Forty years. Yep. Well, I mean, this is the end, I suppose. Something like that. One last hurrah, I guess. There's still strength yet. That there is. The two men stand across from each other for a moment. They nod. Ben Mears turns to Heath and nods at him as well before leaving. 
There is a pause and the sound of a door closing. And Heath looks through the side window and sees Ben Mears walk out onto the street, pulling up an umbrella, continuing along the street, illuminated by the streetlights. He sits back down and turns his attention to Warwick again. Anyway, as we were saying, why didn't we go after Bates? Why didn't we turn over every nook and cranny, find him, make him pay? Well, the truth is, Heath, what happened in Mercy's Creek is not that remarkable. A tragedy, yes. A sad story, yes. Does it keep me up at night sometimes, remembering those faces? Yes. But unfortunately, things like that happen every day, all around the world. Supernatural and unsupernatural. After we got out of Mercy's Creek, we were so hurt, damaged, it was going to be a while before we were fit to fight anyone again, let alone to hunt him down. Before we'd even begun to recover, there were new calls, new missions, new jobs, new people in need of help. We had to prioritize those who were in immediate danger over a potential threat in the future. And I'm sorry to say that we never caught a whiff of him again. I've spent many decades doing this job, Heath. It doesn't get easier. Every day, there is someone fighting for their lives. Someone in desperate need of help. And we can only help so many. We only have so much manpower, so much time, so many tools. The only thing that we can do, Heath, is to keep hoping. To keep focusing on the future. To protect those we can. And strive to protect those... That are put in front of us. He looks down at his hands. Heath, you can see that he is... Older. Tireder. He's lost weight. But if I had it over again... If I had had one more ounce of strength... If I could have got my hands on him, well, maybe it would have been different. Maybe those kids would still be alive. <sighs> Makes me think. When I'm dead and gone, will it be any better? Will I have even made a difference? I hope so. I know sometimes you think of yourself as my legacy, or Emily's legacy, but you're not. But you are... <laughs> you make me very proud, Heath. Very proud. The legacy is tear. The legacy is the continued fight. That's what we strive for. Not any one of us, but all of us together. Little by little, we will make this place 
this world a better place, a safer place. Heath smiles and nods at Warwick before pointing at a smallish wooden box that he had placed on Warwick's desk earlier. Warwick frowns, reaches over and opens the box. Yeah. I see you're starting to put all the pieces together then. Yeah. Good lad. And he pulls out a revolver and he looks on the handle engraved in the wood is the name Derek Harlow. We pull away and we see hung up on one of the walls Warwick's gauntlets now covered with a thin layer of dust as he has retired and we pull back through the window again and fade into darkness. Still not working. I'm trying, I'm trying. It'll, it'll work. You've been saying that for an hour. If we can't get it working, we're not going to find the town. Listen, okay, worst comes to worst, we'll just f- find some roadside place and we'll get a paper map. We haven't passed a gas station in an hour. We're nowhere near Mercy's Creek. Listen, the reception out here is just crap, all right? It'll, it'll work. I think we should have taken a different turn. Well, the, the blog about it's meant to go out in two days, so we kind of need to hurry it up. There's not much I can do about that if I don't know where to drive. We'll just do the backup story. It's It'll be fine. Hey, do you, do you see that coming up ahead? The first man pushes his foot down the brake as something comes running through the darkness along this abandoned road and leaps over the car. The car screeches to a stop and slides a little bit and swerves to the side. Tree! Jesus Christ, what? Oh. The deers out here are crazy. <laughs> uh, That wasn't a deer. The first man pauses and he peers through the back window, the red light illuminating the back area. Hold on a second. He opens the car door and is about to step out when the other man grabs him. What are you doing? (laughs) Phil? Okay, we write a supernatural blog, okay? That should give you enough sense to not get out in the middle of a road when something jumps off your goddamn car. Phil pauses. Mm. Well, we see the perspective of something watching the car slowly coming closer to it. 
If it jumped over, then, like, it's not hurt. Yeah, alright. The man puts his foot back into the car and slams the door. And both men jump as another man peers through the driver's window. The man at the window gestures for them to lower the window. They pause and look at each other before lowering it. Who the bloody hell are you? What are you doing out here? Hello? Uh, I'm a park ranger. Um, do you guys alright? You're, you're really out in the middle of nowhere. It's none of your bit. Our, um, our GPS isn't working. GPS? Ah, perceptions here is terrible. Hold on. The man pulls open his yellow jacket and pulls out a paper map, unfolds it. Where are you looking to go? Uh, we're actually looking for a ghost town. Been dead for a couple decades now, Mercy's Creek. The man yellow pauses for a second. Alright. Oh, well, you guys are really out in the wrong direction then. He lays out the, the map over there, their dash. So you're here. You need to take that road back there and head way, way further south. It's not a border town. People said it was, but it's not. It's quite a ways back. Oh. Thank you. Uh, Phil looks in the review mirror again. Problem? Uh, we, we saw something before. Just a deer or something like that. This time of night, there's just heaps of wildlife around. Good thing you didn't hit it, otherwise you'd be uh, you'd be stuck. Anyway, he pats on the car. Have a good night. Phil winds up the window and pauses for a second. Well, I told you we should have taken that left. The car drives off, leaving Ernest Marsh in the middle of the road. He puts his hands on his hips and waits for the car to disappear. Hugo! There's a pause. And a giant creature emerges through the woods. Tall and thin and ghastly. A wendigo comes and meets Ernest. It kneels down so it's face to face with him. Hugo? Bad. Ernest sprays the wendigo in the face with a water bottle. Bad. No. Get back to town. Go. He points along a small track. The Wendigo slumps its shoulders and runs off along the track. <sighs> Honestly. Ernest puts the water, the spray bottle onto a spray bottle holster he has made on his belt. The Wendigo continues along the path for a short while and passes a man all dressed up like a cowboy. The man breaks his shotgun and hangs it over his shoulder. Sheriff Harlow? Yeah, keep running, boy. The young man shoes the Wendigo along the path and continues up. Ernest! Oi! <whistles> Ernest spins around on the road. Paul! Good news, I hope. Ernest begins taking large strides towards him. Ah, oh, yeah, well, old Whitaker's got someone for you to meet. Ernest claps him on the shoulder. Please, please tell me. Paul Harlow nods a few times. 
Yep. We found him. Ernest punches the air. Yes! Oh. One step closer, Paul. We're one step closer to finding Tuck. Paul nods. And one step closer to finding my cousin. Ernest claps him on both shoulders. You're damn right. All right, let's go. They begin walking along an old, cracked road as the sun begins to peak over the horizon, bringing a new dawn. And we crane slightly over to an old sign that's been half naturally and half intentionally covered up by trees and ivy and branches. A sign that says, Welcome to Mercy's Creek. All I do is sit around And wait for time to run out Grey clouds in the sky I could live again I'd be the Marlboro man Free cigarettes for life Pretty women by my side Once again, there's an aching in my head. I dream of where the wild things roam, pretty flowers dance and glow. I'm a man of skin and bone. I sing and drink all on my own. I die for my broken wings to fly. That was The Ever-Pleasant Mr. Bates, written by Chester Lydon, starring Aubrey Lydon, BJ Ingate, Kate and Caleb Jones, Megan Grayling, and Micah Riley. And the credit song is by the incredible Kyle Brew. I hope you've enjoyed this journey and are more excited than ever for season three of Dark Tides, coming to you very soon. Sun will rise and sun will set. I have my name and my Yonder by the hill 
of life has blown And my happiness is gone Yeah.